Tonight we come to part two in our study of the Lord's Supper, and uh, we will tonight consider the Lord's Supper practically. Uh, Last time we considered this topic, we looked at the Lord's Supper theologically, considering what it is. Tonight we will take a practical look at the Lord's Supper, and what that means is that uh, we will be looking at the, the basics of how we are to observe it. The, the, the practice of the Lord's Supper. Not the what, but the how, so to speak. And before we begin, I'm going to read two things to you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read the passage, which is really considered the, the Lord's Supper passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And also I'm going to read um, a, an excerpt from Article 15 of the 1833 Particular Baptist Confession of Faith, at the the end of that article, our statement on the Lord's Supper. So, 1 Corinthians 11, and I want you to look with me at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, the Bible says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks... He break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. Then our confession of faith, uh, on page 12, article 15, of baptism in the Lord's Supper, beginning there in the middle of the paragraph, our confession reads, We likewise believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. It is preceded always by solemn self-examination. Worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper, do not corporally but spiritually feed upon the benefits of Christ's death as a means of God's grace unto them. Now in the previous lesson, we unpacked the theological implications of this statement and the biblical teachings on the Lord's Supper. Uh, And let me just give you a brief recap of some of the things we considered. We saw that the Lord's Supper is symbolic, but it is not purely symbolic. Uh, That is, that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration, yes, of the Christ-saving death, uh, but that it is also a means of God's grace unto those who partake with faith. Uh, Because the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Christ-saving death, we must approach the table with a solemn self-examination to ensure that we are sincerely in Christ. God uses the Lord's Supper to administer sanctifying grace to those who partake through faith. Because of this, it is essential for Christians to faithfully partake and maintain faithful obedience to the ordinances of the church. And we will get into this in a little bit, but we will find out that the Lord's Supper is really one of the defining marks of what makes a church a church. And so if you are not communing with the church, there's a sense in which you're not really a part of the body. You're not partaking of the, the, one of the most central acts of the church, which is the Lord's Supper. So tonight we're going to seek to answer several practical questions. Okay, and We're going to answer them confessionally and biblically. There's eight of them. So I've got a lot of ground to cover. Some of them are going to be very simple answers. Okay, uh, Some of them we'll, we'll unpack a little bit. 
I'm going to give you those eight questions now, uh, just so you kind of have a roadmap of where we're going, and then we'll go in this order as we answer them. So, number one, which gatherings may partake of the Lord's Supper? Number two, who should lead the Lord's Supper? Number three, what are the proper elements of the Lord's Supper? Number four, how should we partake of those elements? Number five, how often should we observe the Lord's Supper? Number six, what particular things should be included when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? In other words, what does a communion service look like? What does it look like? Uh, Because uh, for some of you, especially some of you that were were recently baptized, you know, just a month or so ago, this will be the first time that you will ever come to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so you might be thinking in your mind, what what should I even expect? What will it even look like when we come to partake? So we're going to talk about that. Question six, what particular things, or no, question seven, excuse me, which individuals may partake of the Lord's Supper? And question eight, how should individuals approach the Lord's Supper, approach the table? And before we jump into answering these questions, I need to make a couple of prefatory remarks, okay? Um, We need to understand two things about church practice. When I say church practice, what I mean is the way churches do things, okay? We need to understand some things about that. Historically, Christians have divided up various different practices into three categories. This is monumental for you to understand. Three categories. These categories are... Things that are both proper and valid, that means uh, we should do them and we should do them this way, okay? Proper and valid. Things that are improper but valid. Improper but valid. And three, things that are both improper and invalid, okay? Uh, Let me give you an example. You all know that we conclude our worship services with a pastoral benediction in which we stand And we raise our hands and we receive from the Lord his blessings to us by faith coming from the word of God. And we believe that that is how worship services should be concluded. That's how we see them concluded in the Bible. That is the proper and the valid way to conclude a worship service. Now, churches that don't end their worship services with a benediction, we would say, well, that's not proper. It's improper, but it is definitely still a valid worship service. We are not going to be as cultic as to say, well, if you don't have a benediction, you did not truly have a worship service. Does everyone understand that distinction? Proper and improper, valid and invalid. Now, here's an example of of the other side. Uh, Baptism, we believe, is conducted by the full immersion of a believer into water. That is the proper and valid way of conducting it. Sprinkling an unbelieving infant is neither proper nor is it valid. It's, it's neither proper nor valid. So it's not baptism. But we would not say that just because a worship service didn't end with a benediction, per se, we would not say, well, that's not a true worship service. So that's important to understand because a lot of the questions that we're going to answer tonight have to do with things that are proper and improper, not things that are valid and invalid. And I want you to understand that because we're going to talk about some very specific things that we will do, that we believe, that we are convinced of, that a lot of wonderful, well-meaning churches don't necessarily practice. And here's what I don't want you to think. I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, if a church doesn't observe the Lord's Supper exactly how Pastor Ken laid it out tonight, then they're not truly practicing the Lord's Supper. I don't want you to think that. Are there some practices that would put you on the outskirts of true observance of the Lord's Supper? Yes, there are, but some of these things that we're going to talk about certainly are not. Okay, There's wonderful churches that might do some things differently than what we will lay out, and it's still very much the Lord's Supper. Okay, So that's important to understand. Secondly, so first, you understand those three categories. Secondly, and this is important as you're studying your Bible, narrative is not always normative. What do I mean by that? Narrative is not always normative. Here's what I mean. Just because you see an example of something in the Bible does not mean that that is positively how it must always be done. Okay? I say that because it is our desire to celebrate the Lord's Supper as much like Jesus and the apostles as we can. We want, that's, that's how we want to do it. However, we have to use what... Uh, Sam Sam Waldron has called sanctified common sense, 
We have to use sanctified common sense to understand that some things are, normative, are, are narrative but not normative. For instance, Jesus observed the Lord's Supper in an upper room. Does that mean we have to be in a two-story building on the top floor to be able to properly observe the Lord's Supper? Not at all. Okay, so we, and, and we have to use some sanctified common sense to determine what is narrative and what is normative. Uh, so our goal tonight is not to provide hard and fast rules for the Lord's Supper. Okay, it is simply to lay out a general guideline of how the Supper should be observed. Some of these things Christians have been debating for the last 2,000 years, and they will probably continue to debate for the next 2,000 years. Some of these things are very serious, but many of these things are not reasons whatsoever that we should break fellowship with other believers, or even reasons why church members should not be able to cohabit the same church if, if there's some disagreements about some of the things that are going to be laid out. I say all of these things because we're going to get really specific tonight, and I don't want you to think that if you have a disagreement with anything, or if anybody has a disagreement with anything, well, they're just a heretic, and they need to go on down the road. Okay, that's not what we're getting at. So, let us answer these questions. The first question, which gatherings may partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, we can answer this by making several observations, okay? When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, observation number one, he did so with his disciples. He did so with all those who composed the first New Testament church in Jerusalem. Second observation, the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to bind many members into one body. It is to foster unity in one body. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the church's unity as the body of Christ. Therefore, we assert that the Lord's Supper may be only observed properly by the church as a church. That's the important part. By the church, as a church. Meaning that it, it would be improper for us to try to observe the ordinance merely just at home as individuals. Or um, let's say we were just, a, a fraction of us were hanging out one day, one afternoon, and the conversation got really spiritual, and we just thought it would be a great idea to break out the bread and the wine and have the Lord's Supper. No, friend. The Lord's Supper is properly observed by the church as a church in its official capacity. And uh, I want to consider what we see scripturally that, that points to that direction. So look there in 1 Corinthians 11 and look at verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 and 18, he says, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, notice that, ye come together, not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, notice, when ye come together in the church. So when is the Lord's Supper being observed in, in the Corinthian church? Not at home in their private families, not at uh, the youth meeting or uh, the seniors meeting or the ladies' Bible study, but it is when they come together in the church. And he's not talking about in the church building. He's talking about in their capacity as one body. Um, keep on looking at 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, into one place. You see that? So there's this geographic oneness that must occur. When ye come together, therefore, into one place. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together... So he's repeating himself, repeating himself, repeating himself. Why is that? Well, because the Corinthian church... If we're preaching through 1 Corinthians on the Lord's days, Right? What have we learned about the Corinthian church? They were very divided, were they not? They had a habit of breaking themselves up into sections and parties within the church. And Paul wanted them to understand, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're not to do it in your own little cliques, you're to come together. So he says in verse 33, when you come together, tarry one for another. Tarry one for another. What does that mean? It means wait on one another. Wait on one another. Now, if one member cannot make it, okay, that doesn't mean that the rest of the church should be held hostage. But it does mean that we should do all that we can to ensure that we are faithful to the Lord's Supper. It's not something we should just do spontaneously. Uh, it's not something that we should just uh, secretly announce and then whoever shows up, surprise, we're taking the Lord's Supper today. It should be something that we plan for and announce and and make sure that we have given everyone the, the, the due 
uh, ability to make preparations to be there because it is very, very important to be there. And I think you might even be able to make arguments that, especially in a church like ours with the size that we are, if someone is running late and they say, hey, I'm on my way, wait, tarry for them, tarry one for another, Paul says. And think about it, in, in these days, these were a times when you didn't have these little black boxes that you can pick up and press a couple of numbers and get in touch with someone. And so Paul was saying, if you are meeting and you're waiting on people to get there and you, you're, you're noticing that there's some members not there yet, wait for them. Wait for them. That's how important it is that we are all together. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 17, we see that the Lord's Supper is actually something that plays a part in making a church a church. 1 Corinthians 10 and 17 for we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. We being many in the supper are made one. It is a unique feature and privilege of the Lord's church. If you are taking it individually, you cannot have this aspect of the many being made one. By observing the Lord's supper as an ordinance of the church, we maintain its biblical purpose of ratifying our unity as one body. Think about it this way. Uh, members of a football team, they are always members of that football team. They are members of that football team all throughout the week, and they are expected to practice personally and train individually and, and exercise and whatnot, but there are certain drills and activities that they can only do when they come together. And when we come together, we exist as a church in a way that we don't exist when we are not together. So, uh, in most cases... Those who attempt to observe the Lord's Supper apart from the church do so with the best of intentions. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't do so to, to be rebellious, no. Um, but that does not make the practice biblical just because it's done with the best of intentions. So by upholding this corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that to belong to Christ is to belong to one another and that the whole body is greater than its members as individuals. Um, there is no one as an individual who is greater than the body collectively. Okay? So that's an important uh, truth to understand. That's why we're commanded to submit, therefore, one unto another. Right? Prefer one another before ourselves. Why? Because the people around you are more important than you. That's, that's uh, Christianity 101. So, number one, which gathering should partake of the Lord's Supper? The church should partake of the Lord's Supper as a church, as one collective body. Question number two, who should lead the Lord's Supper? Now, this is, uh, this is not a difficult one for, for us to answer. Ideally, the Lord's Supper should be led, should be administered by an ordained pastor of the church. Why do we believe that? Well, because the New Testament makes it clear in such texts as 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that pastors or elders are to lead in the worship of the church. And the Lord's Supper is certainly an act of worship and certainly a time in which the gospel is visibly preached. So ideally, an ordained pastor should be the one who administers the Lord's Supper. Now, this raises an important question. May a church celebrate the Lord's Supper if it does not have a pastor, if it does not have elders? And there are certainly churches that right now are seeking a pastor, that don't have a pastor. Well, historically, churches have answered this question various ways. Some have abstained from the ordinances, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay? Uh, some have brought in a, an elder or a pastor from another assembly to administer the ordinances. Uh, neither of these two options, though, are biblically necessary. I believe the scriptures teach that a church may and should celebrate the Lord's Supper even if it does not have a pastor, and here's why. A pastor, or really pastors, plurality of elders, though vital for the health and longevity of the church, they are not required for the church's existence. The Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is more important than a pastor. Do you understand that? Uh, if, if, if I were to be hit by a bus on my way home tonight, and I was not here Sunday... Christ Fellowship would still be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, if we never partook of the Lord's Supper, we just said that is something as a church we do not do, we would not be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's how important it is. So, in those cases, qualified men should preside over the elements. Is it ideal? No. Should churches without pastors make it their utmost priority to find a faithful pastor? Yes, they should. But I don't believe that the lack of a pastor is uh, any type of legitimate warrant for the abstention from the ordinance of the church, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. Three, what are the proper elements of the Lord's Supper? Now, um, before answering, let me point out that this is a good example of distinctions between proper and improper, not valid and invalid. Okay, um, Because though the position I'm about to lay out has been unquestionably the majority position throughout the last 1900 years of church history, it certainly isn't anymore today here in the South especially. Um, and that said, there are still plenty of wonderful churches who use perhaps different elements than what we believe are proper, and they are still truly celebrating the Lord's Supper. Okay? Uh, that said, though, the elements of the Lord's Supper do matter. They are important, and we do think that they're a very serious conversation to have, just like the mode and the elements of baptism matter. It's a very serious conversation to have. Now, a whole lesson could be given to answer this, this one question, uh, but time really doesn't permit that could spend a whole hour on this one question, but we're not going to do that. So our confession answers this question for us. Our confession says that the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine. What are the elements? Bread and wine. Now this is really quite plain for us to determine because all we have to do is look and see what elements did Jesus use when he instituted the Lord's Supper. What elements did Jesus use? And we find that, turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 15, as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, you must understand that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the feast of Passover. In fact, you can argue... And you, if you argued this, you would be arguing correctly that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant ordinance of the Lord's Supper that would then surpass the old covenant ordinance of the Passover. And in Luke 22 and verse 15, notice what the Bible says. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, what elements is Jesus using to institute the Lord's Supper? the same elements that would have been used in the Jewish Passover. And we know what those elements were. They were unleavened bread. We just preached through 1 Corinthians 5. It's amazing how expository preaching becomes very providential when we serve a sovereign God, and he ties all of this together. And what did we see last Sunday in 1 Corinthians 5? We saw that we are to celebrate the feast with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. So unleavened bread and fermented wine. So we use fermented wine in the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, number one, because that's what Jesus used. That, and that really, that answer alone is sufficient for me. But I do believe that if you want to take the typological argument and look at what the, the elements represent and the unleavened bread, what is leaven a picture of in this context? Well, it's a picture of sin. And so we use unleavened bread, no leaven present in the feast. Well, we use fermented wine because if you study out the process of fermentation the process of fermentation is a process by which the leaven is killed from the liquid and Jesus' blood of course cleanses us from sin, purges out the sin in our lives um, you could also very easily make the historical argument if you know anything about the time of year that Passover was observed, it was observed as far away from the grape harvest as you could get and 2,000 years ago, they did not have handy-dandy fridges and wonderful Walmarts where they could prepackage grape juice and store it for two or three years and keep it preserved. So wine, uh, grape juice, the fruit of the vine, naturally put into a wineskin would ferment naturally. It didn't have to be uh, formed into fermented wine. It would naturally form into fermented wine. And there's no reason whatsoever for us to think that Jesus used anything else. Now, I understand that 
because of the commercialization of Christianity that you know, many churches today will use a little prepackaged wafer and a little thimble of Welch's grape juice. Is that invalid? I'm not going to say that. No, I'm not going to say that those churches are not observing the Lord's Supper. Is it improper? I believe so. I believe properly we should use the elements that Jesus used. So, again, whole books have been written about this. Um, whole sermons could be preached on this. You won't find much said about it before the year 1900 because churches pretty much universally used unleavened bread and fermented wine. But in the last 50 years especially, uh, grape juice has become much more common. And you will find that a lot more in, in churches. So if you have more questions about that, we'll be happy to, to go into it in more detail. But just so you are aware, that is, uh, that is the position that we would hold that uh, the proper elements are unleavened bread and fermented wine. Question number four, how should we partake of the elements? Now you might think, well, that's a silly question. What do you mean, how should we partake of the elements? How many different ways can you eat something? <laughs> well... You might think that it is a silly question, but it is, in fact, one that has been long debated throughout church history. Why is that? Well, because Roman Catholicism, in their practice of the Eucharist, they practice something called intinction. Not instinction, but intinction. What is that? That is where you take the bread and you dip it, you sop it, and then you eat the bread. But when we read the Gospel accounts, we find that what Jesus said was, Take, eat, Drink ye all of it. Two separate acts. We are to take and eat the bread, and we are to um, take and drink the cup. How should we partake of the elements raises another question for us, and uh, it's, this is one that certainly should not cause any contention. It's just something that I think is interesting for us to consider, primarily because we don't really consider it. Should we partake of the elements as a stand-alone 10-minute tack-on to the end of a service? Or should we partake of the elements in the midst of a meal, in the midst of a corporate meal? Well, Jesus obviously instituted the Lord's Supper in the midst of a meal. Again, everything that is narrative is not always normative. So is it commanded for us to partake of the Lord's Supper in the midst of a meal? I don't think we can command that. I think to command that would be to go beyond what the Bible allows us to command. But I do think there's a very important inference that we should draw from that. And that is this. The Lord's Supper is special. And it is meant to be its own event that the church does. It is not just meant to be this 10-minute tack-on at the end of a worship service. Um, the, the Roman Catholic practice is not for the bread to be passed, not for the, the wine to be passed, but for the, uh, the, the, the churchgoers to come up and receive it, and some of them will actually receive it on their way out the door. Just, here, take this. You know, they'll form a line and just hand it to them on their way out the door. I believe the Lord's Supper is far more special than that. It's not just something that we are to just quickly do as quick as we can so we can move on to the, the rest of our day after church is over. Now, it's something that we must maintain the sacredness of, and it must be a distinct part of our worship. So, how should we partake of the elements? We should eat the bread, we should drink the cup, and we should not be so concerned with how quickly we can do it. We should enjoy the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Question number five, how often should we observe the Lord's Supper? This is a, another one that shouldn't cause any contention because the Bible simply does not tell us verbatim how often we are to observe the Lord's Supper. You say, well, then why are you trying to answer this question? Because though it does not give us an exact time increment, it does give us some very helpful pointers. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 25. This is all the Bible says as, as far as um, how often we are to partake of it. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25, After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, here's the important phrase, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. How often are we to partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, uh, it certainly doesn't tell us how often, but it does say that we are to do it often. It doesn't say as frequently as you do this, uh, but as often as you do this. Now, 
It is true that the early church observed the Lord's Supper every time they met together. And we can even see that in the book of Acts. We can see uh, that they met together on the first day of the week and partook of the Lord's Supper pretty much every time they met together. But we must also take into account two things. Number one, they lived in an age in which it was impossible to communicate with one another when they were not physically present. And number two, they lived in an age in which there was no guarantee that they would ever be all assembled together again because of just the, the age in which they lived and also because of the persecution that they were under. Biblical wisdom leads us to observe the supper often enough that it is a normal part of our life as a church, but not so frequently that it becomes commonplace. For this reason, we believe it most wise to observe the supper monthly. Observe the supper monthly on the fourth Sunday of the month. Now, if we ever get to a position to where we are under such persecution, such first century-like persecution, where we start having uh, to meet, in, where we start have to have meetings in secret, and we don't know if we're going to all be alive and able to come back the next Sunday, we might reconsider that. And we might think, because of the time in which we live, it might be more prudent for us to observe the supper more often. Uh, they also did not just meet, by the way, for an hour in the morning, hi and bye and see you later. Uh, their gatherings were often whole-day events. Uh, you see that in the book of Acts. Paul preached a sermon one time. The sermon was so long that someone could fall asleep in the balcony, fall out of the church building, die, and be resurrected, and Paul was still preaching. The church services were so long in Acts chapter 5 that Ananias came to the church service, lied about how much money he gave, was struck dead, was carried out, was buried. Three hours later, his wife shows up. She lies. She's struck dead. She's buried. Church service is still going on. Okay, So uh, they're not doing that between 10.30 and 12.30. So uh, what I'm saying to you is they were not concerned by how long it took them to attend to things such as the Lord's Supper. So we observe the Lord's Supper monthly. Now, there's a trend right now to revert back to weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. Do I think that's wrong or invalid? Not at all. No, I have many wonderful friends that pastor churches that do just that and have recently started doing just that. However, one of the things that I have noticed, and I've, I've attended uh, some of their uh, Lord's, Lord's Suppers services, communion services, one of the things that I have noticed is that you know, they, they, they do it weekly because they want to elevate the significance of the ordinance. They want to do it more often. But what I find is that actually the significance of the supper is detracted from because it's such a common thing. And because they're doing it every week, they don't spend very much time with it. It becomes something they do rather quickly. And the preaching of the word is also detracted from because obviously you're going to have to cut that sermon down to make time in that same service slot that you have to fit both sermon and Lord's Supper in. So uh, Christian wisdom leads us in these matters, and there are, believe it or not, certain things where Christian wisdom allows us as churches to decide what is most prudent for our congregation. Okay, that leads us to question six. Question six, what particular things should be included when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? In other words, what does a communion service look like? Okay. We determine this by observing how the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ in places like Matthew 26 and Luke 22, and also how Paul taught the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay. Here are some things that occur in all of those instances that, that should occur in our service. Number one, the Lord's Supper should be explained. Every time we come to take it, we should not take for granted that we all know what we're about to do uh, and everyone is on the same page. It should be explained. Jesus explained it when he instituted it to his disciples. He did not just say, here, eat this bread, here, drink this wine. No, he said, this is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood. He explained what he was instituting. We should explain it. Secondly, the table must be fenced must be fenced. What does that mean? That's an old antiquated phrase, isn't it? Yes, it is. It simply means an explanation of who may and may not partake. The table must be properly fenced. The invitation must be given, and the fencing must occur. And we'll get into that in, the ne in our next question. But that is something that must occur. The table must be fenced. Thirdly, the elements must be blessed. 
Jesus held up the elements and he blessed them. We, we, now, what does it mean to bless them? Well, the Catholics say that the priest has a supernatural ability to transform the elements into the literal body and blood of Christ. That is not at all what we find in the Bible. But we simply, by blessing them in the same way that we would bless one another, we are to thank the Lord for this institution, for what it represents. We are to approach the Lord's Supper with prayer, with corporate prayer and blessing. And we should conclude, I believe, with the congregational singing of a hymn. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He, he gave the supper. And, and think, about, think about this. The Lord's Supper is a visible word. It is the gospel visibly. So you have the word preached when the, the elements are explained. You have the word visualized when the elements are administered. And then you have the word sung at the conclusion of the service. So I believe we should conclude with the congregational singing of praise. That's, those are the, the, the simple outline of what the service will look like. That's what you can expect. Um, by the way, let me say this. We will be having our regular worship service with no amendations Sunday morning at 1030. We will have that worship service. We will have a break, stretch your legs, do whatever, and then we will reconvene to observe the Lord's Supper. We, we don't want it to be something where we're just tacking it on to the end of a service, uh, where we're rushing to get it done so that we can get on with the rest of our day. We want it to be a celebration that we are able to enjoy as a church. Okay, question seven, and question eight is very, very easy to answer. So question seven, which individuals may partake of the Lord's Supper? This is perhaps a more controversial question in today's church culture because we often feel that we are automatically entitled to certain Christian privileges apart from the order that God has given us in his word. Okay? Uh, but God does indeed have an order. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, his order is quite simple. Let me first point this out to you. Not everyone is invited to partake. How do we know this? Because Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians of those who partake unworthily. He says there are some that partake unworthily, and when they partake unworthily, they bring damnation upon themselves. Paul said that some were partaking unworthily, and they became weak and sickly and died. That's how serious the Lord's Supper is. That's how serious God's order is. So, how do we determine who may partake of the Supper? Well, let's start broad and get narrow. Number one, the Lord's Supper is for believers. Lord's Supper is for believers. Um, there are some who uh, practice pedo communion. Pedo communion has uh, pretty much been considered heretical or at least heterodox by the broad evangelical community. Uh, we are not to offer the elements of the supper to anyone who does not make a credible profession of faith in Christ. One of the brightest minds of American Christianity, Jonathan Edwards, was kicked out of the church that he faithfully pastored over this very issue because he, he would not allow unbelievers to partake of the supper. And he actually threw his body over the elements at a communion service uh, because the Puritan view was, well, uh, if you were baptized as an infant and you're not living a scandalous life, maybe you don't have a profession of faith, but you're an upstanding member of society, you may come and partake of the elements. And Jonathan Edwards and others, many others, said, No, if you cannot profess that Jesus Christ has personally saved you and that you are in him, you have no right to the table. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are saying, I believe in this Jesus that gave his body for me and shed his blood for me. When we partake of the Lord's Supper without faith, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says, We heap damnation upon ourselves. So, the Lord's Supper is for believers. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. The Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Why is this? Well, because baptism is how we publicly profess our faith. Baptism is our initiation in the visible new covenant. The Lord's Supper is our renewal in that covenant. It's our renewal in that covenant. It is our recommitment to ourselves and to those around us of our covenantal obligations. Therefore, to come to the table before coming to the waters of baptism is to put the cart before the horse and not follow the pattern given to us by God. Okay? 
Uh, baptism, we understand, is what visibly unites us to the new covenant. It's, it, it is when our faith goes public. Well, the Lord's Supper is something that we are to do to maintain that public profession. Uh, it would be kind of as if, you know, you, you, were, you were courting a young lady or, or ladies, you were courting a young man, and you said, let's go renew our vows. And he said to you, or she said to you, what do you mean renew them? We've never made them in the first place. Well, so too is baptism. And you've all heard me use the wedding ring analogy. Uh, what made me married to my wife was not this ring that I wear on my finger that I bought for $18 on Amazon. That's not what, this is not what makes me married. What made me married was that I made vows to her before God, that she made vows to me before God, and we were spiritually united to one another in holy matrimony. This is just a visible symbol. What spiritually unites you to Christ is not your baptism. What spiritually unites you to Christ is the faith that you have placed in him. But your baptism is that first and non-negotiable, visible symbol that you are to take upon yourself. And you should not be taking upon yourself other visible symbols before you take upon that first one. Right? So, uh, the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Third qualification, the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers who have submitted themselves to the discipline of the church. Now, this is the one that gets a little hairy. Um, but I think that if we, if we just take the scriptures at face value, it's quite plain for us to see. It is very clear that in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is inseparable from church discipline. We find that in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says in verse 11 of that chapter, talking about, those who have made a false profession of faith, those who are members of the church, but they are living a life that is, that is inconsistent with their profession, they're persisting openly in unrepentant sin. Paul says, with such a one, no, not to eat. Does that go beyond the Lord's Supper? Yeah, but it certainly applies to the Lord's Supper. So in other words, Paul says that the church, not the pastor, okay, but the church has the authority to withhold the elements from its members in certain cases of unrepentant sin. Okay? Understand that principle. Now, let me give you an illustration. Let's say we practiced open communion where anyone who attended was able to participate. We did not fence the table in any way. Um, we just explained what it was and we offered the elements to anyone that wanted to participate. And let's say we had some that partook regularly with us. They partook regularly. Never submitted to the discipline, but they partook regularly. And then those individuals began living in open and unrepentant sin. And then the church would step in and say, well, you are not qualified any longer to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to excommunicate you. And they would simply look at us and say, what do you mean excommunicate? I was never communicated. How can you excommunicate? So if the church is responsible for who it administers the ordinances to, don't believe that the church should administer the ordinance to anyone who is not submitted to that body. Now, some will say, well, that is denying the Catholicity of the church, or that is being harsh or narrow-minded. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that is putting the Lord's Supper on its proper place as an ordinance that Christ gave to the church. Who did Jesus administer the supper to? His disciples. His apostles that formed the first church. They were not the only believers in the city of Jerusalem at the time. John had been baptizing converts. Jesus' disciples had been baptizing converts. But he did not institute the Lord's Supper in a gathering of the mass multitudes. No, he did it with his church that he formed. Uh, let's say, here's another good example. And this, this one is especially applicable in our day and age. Let's say someone was disciplined from another church was censored from another church because of scandalous life or, or, or whatever the case may be. And they happened to come and visit, visit us while we were observing the Lord's Supper. And wh what would we be doing if we practiced open communion? We would be, number one, undermining the discipline of another assembly. Uh, we would be, number two, unwittingly administering the Lord's Supper to someone who is partaking unworthily. I believe we would give an account for that, and so would they. So the practice of open communion genders confusion, and it does not follow the order that God laid out. Uh, Baptists have historically followed the maxim, blood before the water, water before the table. 
So in other words, um, you know, we are to receive the ordinance of, uh, of well, we're, we're to receive the spiritual redemption from Christ shed, shed out by his blood before we receive baptism. We are to receive baptism before we are to come to the table. Uh, in older church records, you will often find phrases like, so-and-so was brought into the communion of the church upon their baptism, or was brought into the communion of the church upon their, they transferred their membership, or, or whatever the case may be. We don't use the, that terminology much anymore, but I think it's wonderful terminology. They used it uh, interchangeably with becoming a member. So to be brought into the communion is to join that assembly, right? Why did they use that terminology? Because it was assumed that prior to baptism and church membership, you weren't partaking of communion. But after baptism, you were expected to commune with the church at the table. And I think that in some regards, it's even more serious for members to not partake when the church has convened to partake. It's very serious to, to miss that out because membership is communing. It's membering. It's communing. So now let me conclude this answer with this, though, however. This is, this is very important for us to emphasize. The Lord's Supper, just like baptism, is a public ordinance. It is a public ordinance. This means that there are practically no limits whatsoever on who is invited to be present at the celebration of the supper. So having your unconverted friends, having your unconverted children... Having those who are visiting with us, having those who are perhaps considering membership, are, they are strongly encouraged to be present. Um, especially, I would say, those who are unconverted. If, if you have an unconverted friend that you have been considering inviting to, uh, to church with you, uh, what better time than when the church comes to partake of communion? Why? Because that's the gospel visibly. When your unconverted children look up to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, what are you doing? Tell them what you're doing. Explain to them what you're doing. And then pray that someday they may do it too. Uh, so, we, we, we don't administer the ordinances to everyone, but we certainly encourage all who have a desire to attend. I have preached at churches uh, for their communion services. I preached at churches for their communion services. And I preached, and I sat down, and the pastors of that church would then get up and administer the ordinances to the congregation, and I would sit, and I would observe, and my heart would rejoice. Why? Because it's the gospel visible. It's the gospel visible. Um, we, have to get, we have to get away from this kind of self-centered idea that you know, if it, we have to be a part. We have to be a part. And I don't want to feel excluded. That's, that's not the point. The Lord's Supper is not about you. It's not about you as an individual. It's about Christ and his body as a group. All right, so, uh, and again, I understand that that is perhaps a, a controversial answer to that question. If you have follow-up questions, please get with me on them. So, last question, question eight. How should individuals approach the table? How should individuals approach the table? I'm going to answer this very simply. You should approach the table with four looks. You should approach the table with four looks. There should be a look back to the cross as you remember our Lord Jesus hanging on Calvary's hill, shedding his blood for the remission of sins, his body bruised and broken for you. You should think upon Calvary should be a look back to the cross. There should be a look upward to God as we think not only of what has happened in the past, but what is presently happening right now as you are re-solidifying your union in Christ, as you are thanking God the Father for sending His Son, uh, as you are realizing that you are partaking of communion with one another and with God Himself. There should be a look upward to God. There should be a look around you at those you are partaking with. Uh, you should look around and you should realize that the Lord has assembled His people here in this locality. And He is doing something that is marvelous and He's doing it right before our very eyes. Uh, there are some of us in this room that apart from our faith in Jesus Christ would have no reason to have anything to do with one another. 
if not for Jesus Christ. But because of Jesus Christ, we have more in common than any other group of people on the face of the earth. I've said this before, and I truly mean it. I have more in common with uh, someone in the deep, darkest pits of the Amazon running around in a loincloth that knows nothing about America or the, the first world environment that we live in who has Christ in his heart and has been baptized into Jesus Christ than I do with someone that lives in Paris, Tennessee that does not know the Savior. So, we should approach the supper with a look around at the church. And the last look, well, let me give you two more looks. I said four, I meant five. There should be a look inward into yourself, into your own heart. Uh, you, should, you should question your own heart. You should examine your own heart. You should, you should ask yourself, am I partaking worthily? Am I partaking with unrepentant sin in my heart? And if you are, you should not partake. There should be a time in the service for that type of examination, for that type of repentance. You should ask yourself, am I partaking begrudgingly towards uh, someone else that is also partaking? We should not partake if we have ill will towards a brother or sister in our heart. What, what a slap in the face of the Almighty to partake of an ordinance that He gave us to symbolize our unity Meanwhile, we are harboring bitterness or resentment towards the person sitting on the pew next to us. And I have even seen in communion services where prior to the administering of the ordinances, uh, a member would get up and go and, and go to the pew where a brother or sister sat and he would sit down and he would ask for the forgiveness before then reconvening and partaking of the, the elements. I think it's that serious. I really do. And then the last look, there should be look, a look forward to the ultimate consummation of your communion with Christ. You have a present communion with Christ. Right now, you have a personal communion with Christ. When the church comes together, we have a corporate communion with Christ. But that communion is only a foretaste of our eternal communion with Him and the consummation of our redemption. When all sin has been put under His feet and the flesh that we carry around with us has been uh, exchanged for that which is immortal and we are entering into the eternal joys of our heavenly communion. So, was that a lot of information? That was a lot of information. So if you'd like notes or have follow-up questions, um, I'll be happy to, to do any of that. Um, let me just say, we practice the Lord's Supper the way we do because we take the Bible seriously. And our only goal is to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the way that Jesus instructed us to do so. That's our only goal. So our prayer is that the Lord might save sinners, might add them to his church, and might, uh, might grow our communion as he sees fit. So.